good evening. You know, there's some more spots on the floor over here if people want to sit, uh, because it may be uncomfortable where you are. Uh, or, or right in front of us here. Are there, are there any empty chairs that anybody... Sorry we're so crowded. But actually, we're glad we're so crowded. I take that back. Well, so uh, good evening. I'm Sandy Unger, president of Goucher College, and delighted to uh, welcome this capacity crowd. If this were an Orioles game, it would, it would set a record. But uh, we're really happy to have Gene Baker, uh, who incidentally happens to be class of 1960 at Goucher College. Um, And just incidentally, professor of history. Uh, and we're, uh, we're here to talk this evening about her newest book, Margaret Sanger, A Life of Passion. You know, in, the, in my time at Goucher, I think since I've been here, you've published three new books. I think that's about right. The Buchanan Biography, The Founding Sisters, right? Oh, this is wonderful. And now, <laughs> and now Sanger. It's quite... Quite an amazing rate of productivity. Maybe this means a contract for next year. <laughs> Don't count on it. <laughs> um, I, everybody here knows about uh, Jean Baker, but I do want to say that uh, she graduated from Goucher Magna Cum Laude and earned her both her master's degree and PhD in history from uh, Johns Hopkins. Uh, she began teaching at Goucher in 1972. How do you like it so far, Jean? <laughs> so 30 years on the, on the faculty at Goucher. And uh, she's written a number of uh, very widely acclaimed books, including a, a biography of the Stevenson family, biography of Mary Todd Lincoln, and, uh, and uh, a very sweet uh, book about James Buchanan, whom she, when we, when we in this same room talked about that book, she said was the second worst president of the United States. Uh, and I won't... during the Bush years. <laughs> well, I'm here tonight to be Gene Straight Man. It's a role I've performed before, and, uh, and, and one that I welcome. Uh, this book has achieved uh, quite a lot of attention, her biography of Margaret Sanger. We are not selling books tonight, but we don't want to discourage anybody from buying one. Uh, but but uh, Jean preferred not to uh, have people feel obligated to buy the book. Uh, you are obligated to buy the book, but not tonight. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's really, and I must say, as somebody who has... Uh, promoted books myself in the past. I've never seen anyone do so as successfully as Jean. She is somewhere, it seems, every day promoting this book, or every week anyway, and it's marvelous. I mean, you... Uh, I have a bad back as a result of all this, and uh, hey, for those students who are in my class, I'm thinking about calling a class off. So there are some benefits, I suppose, <laughs> to coming to a session on, uh, on Margaret Sanger. So um, we're, going, we're just going to have a conversation. And I think we want to uh, uh, leave as much time as possible for people to ask questions. Um, I, I think uh, not only about Margaret Sanger, but also about the craft of biography, which uh, Jean has mastered uh, over the years and has done so well. And I think some people might might like to, uh, to talk about writing, uh, which is something we try to take a, an opportunity to talk about uh, as often as possible. Gene, um, I'd like to, I, I had this idea of sort of looking back and looking forward from the life of Margaret Sanger, but before we do that, um, rather than my summarizing the life of Margaret Sanger, I wonder if you might just uh, do that for a moment. Tell us about how she came to this calling uh, on behalf of women? Well, let me begin with a story. And the story begins in the summer of 1912. 
A hundred years ago, this coming summer, a young nurse was called to, by a doctor, an urgent call to come to a home on the Lower East Side because a woman was hemorrhaging from a botched abortion. Now remember, we live in the somewhat problematical days of Roe v. Wade, which is all of you in women's studies and other students know is under attack. Uh, but before Roe v. Wade, abortion was illegal everywhere in the United States. The young nurse picked up her black bag, the sign of the nurse, hastened down to the Lower East Side where Sadie Sachs was hemorrhaging. When the hemorrhage was stopped, Sadie Sachs, a woman of 24 with four children already, said to the doctor, what can I do to not have another baby? And the doctor said, <coughs> I'm sorry to say this because my husband is here and he is a physician, the doctor said in that indifferent way of doctors of this generation, tell Jake to sleep on the roof. <laughs> Six months later, Margaret Sanger, and you know who that young nurse was, was called back to the Lower East Side, and this time, Sadie Sachs was suffering from another botched abortion. She had septicemia and she died. That was the founding moment of Margaret Sanger's crusade for birth control. She walked back to her apartment where she's the mother of three children, her children and husband were sleeping, and as she looked out over uh, Manhattan, and Sanger has a really dramatic sense to her, this is what she writes in her autobiography, she said, I am going to help those women. I am going to fight for birth control. I will be heard. I will be heard. Uh, my friend Julie sitting on the uh, front row will recognize William Lloyd Garrison. These are the same words uh, that William Lloyd Garrison said when he began the uh, abolitionist crusade. So there was the beginning for this long, long effort. And uh, Margaret Sanger, who was born in 1879 and died in 1966, was in at the beginning. When she began, birth control, not only abortion, but birth control was illegal. It was against the law to market, to distribute any forms of contraception. When Margaret Sanger died in 1966, she had been an enabler for making contraception legal, for making it accessible, and for helping women to have the most convenient form of birth control, and that, of course, was the pill. I guess you're going to hope that not all my answers are that long. No, no, that's all right. <laughs> um, you're entitled to answers at whatever length you choose. Um, well, I wanted to go back from that and then later come forward uh, and ask about the Comstock Act, which I think few people know about these days. What was it, 1873 it was Good. passed, right? Yeah. Good. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, I've been pretty yeah, good with the dates. The Comstead Act uh, was, to us, <coughs> simply incredible. George Comstock uh, was a, a Puritan. He grew up in uh, Connecticut, and he served in the Civil War, and he came to New York, and he found sin everywhere. He reminds me. Why was he looking uh, for it? <laughs> it was just the way that he was. And he found it. You remember that famous thing, statement by H.L. Um, Mencken. Uh, Comstock was a kind of guy who, as Mencken said, 
was upset if people were having a good time anywhere. <laughs> and they were having a good, a good time in New York. It was Sin City. Uh, there was prostitution, there was drinking, there were all kinds of things going on. So uh, Comstock decides that he will introduce a legislation, national legislation. He goes to Washington and he sets up this exhibit of sexual toys, I guess we call them today, dildos, whatever, in the lobby of Congress. Now, Congress, <laughs> Congress is, is, is suffering because uh, this is the Grant administration and there's a lot of co financial corruption. So, and it's the end of the session. And Comstock has this legislation that he has written. He persuades Congress to accept it and to pass it. And so after 19, 1873, we have a national law that says that you cannot distribute, you cannot market, you <coughs> cannot advertise, you cannot promote any form of contraception. Contraception is included under the obscenity statute. So when Margaret Sanger began the crusade, her crusade in 1912, uh, what we have is just a total shutdown of any kinds of efforts to give to women contraception. Now, the interesting thing about this is that there is always male uh, contraception. Condoms are used and they're not illegal. And the reason is that there's a worry that men will get venereal disease. But it's women that Margaret Sanger is hoping to support and to... Uh, to protect. Have, really. Yeah, to protect. Thank you. Yes. Were there... Um, Wealthy people who actually did have access to birth control. I mean, is it was yeah. it like just yeah. like the the abortion laws? The, the wealthy generally managed to find a way to have an abortion, while the poor did not. Yeah. And and was that true at the time that wealthy For people sure. had access to birth control? Is it okay to use the word class anymore? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um. But you could be accused <laughs> as of class warfare. Fair, yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, the. The women that uh, Margaret Sanger took care of as a nurse would say to her, uh, the rich women know what to do. Tell us what we should have and what we should do so that we will not have to have families of eight and 10. So this is a class issue. Women are going to gynecologists. It's a new <coughs> discipline. And uh, gynecologists are struggling a little bit to define their profession. And what happens is that the wealthy women have enough money uh, to go to gynecologists and to get information uh, that will prevent pregnancy. Uh, jumping forward for a moment, it is quite amazing that contraception seems to be an issue in the presidential campaign of 2012. Um, and I, I, I mean, we've come a long way. Well, uh, let me... Um, I mean, it doesn't strike you as well, sort of frightening that... Uh, yeah, frightening. Horrifying. I, I want to speak to this from the perspective, though, of spending a lot of time with uh, Margaret Sanger. She was always worried that things would retrogress. Uh, I think it's sort of psychological. She grew up in Corning, and she was worried that she, if she could ever get away from Corning. But she was always concerned that no matter what the success was, no matter whether it was a Supreme Court decision uh, that had overturned the Comstock law, she was always worried that there might be a court that would reverse mm -hmm. 
uh, these uh, improvements and advances, that there would be a political situation as we are in today. And while I am surprised, and I think many people in the room may be surprised, at the way that this particular uh, aspect of women's health has curved into uh, a political issue, uh, Margaret Sanger never would have been. And she so was, she wouldn't be surprised. At she all. wouldn't be surprised. And so when I'm pessimistic about this, I think, well, think about what Margaret Sanger would have done and her what would she have done today well, she, what would she have done today she would well <laughs> she would have been uh, more active one of the issues that you've probably been reading about in the press is that women haven't been seen in uh, this battle f for contraception but I think what she would have done would have been to do what she did so well from 1912 uh, to 1960, and that was she had this mantra: first, first you, you, right. uh, you were active, and agitate, then you, educate, you, organize, you, and yes, lobby. Say it, right? Say it. Agitate, educate, organize, and lobby. You've read the book. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that what she would have done—it's dangerous. <laughs> Uh, would have be, been to use that sort of, of uh, strategy, and I'm sure she would have committed some acts of civil disobedience. Hmm. And Which that, nobody's doing now, really. No, no, we don't have much of that a anymore. Um, when she uh, set up her clinic uh, in Brooklyn in 1916, it was, of course, illegal. It was an act of civil disobedience. It was shut down. She was taken off to jail, and saying She actually oh, spent time in jail? Uh, yeah, spent time in jail, uh, and knew that that was, a, that was propaganda, that was worth it, that she would turn uh, what was going on, uh, which was rather static public opinion in the United States, that it would turn, because this was a compelling episode, that this mother of three children uh, would be put in jail mm -hmm. Uh, because she wanted to give women contraception. Did you ever meet Margaret Sanger? No, but I know some of her um, descendants. She lived until 1966, but was, was uh, not in very good condition toward the end of her life. Is that right? And uh, what, what, what happened at the end of her life? I'm just wondering if you might want oh, to review that a little Oh, I think it's too sad. I, I, uh, well... <laughs> He's the interviewer, so I guess... Uh, Straight man. Uh, um, at the end of her life, uh, Margaret Sanger had worked very hard and was the instrumental key person for the development of the pill. And when we say the pill, we all know there's only one pill, isn't there? After that, uh, she's in her early 80s by this time. She has some forms of mental t deterioration, and uh, she ends up in a, a nursing home and um, is, her, her friends and supporters were so sad that this woman who had been such a giant, so active, so compelling, so intense, so persevering, uh, would end up in a nursing home unable right. to, even greet her two sons. 1960, the introduction of the birth control pill. She sort of orchestrated this, didn't she? Mm -hmm. It might be worth um, yeah, telling that story a Sanger, little bit. Sanger, this is why I admire her. There are a lot of bad things about Sanger. I mean, our heroes have messy lives often, and she certainly had uh, one of those. But one of the things I most admire about her is that besides all this activism and organization, she's looking for the solution. She's a woman that's trying to get women to accept birth control when there really aren't very many te good technologies. What was there? There were spermicides. Uh, there was the <coughs> pessary, which we call the diaphragm. Sanger, all during this period, is working 
listening to science, scientists. She's well aware of the emergence of endocrinology. She's well aware that this is probably where the solution, the pill, will come from. And so she supports an unfrocked biologist who had not gotten tenure, sorry, sorry, Sandy, at Harvard, and <laughs> had to move into uh, a, a freestanding lab in Worcester. This was Mass. this guy. M this Mr. is Gregory Pincus. Right. Pincus is not worrying, uh, working on the pill. Uh, Pincus is working on a steroid <coughs> for arthritis. Sanger and her wealthy friend, Catherine McCormick, decide that he's the one that has the best solution. And so they drive in this wonderful moment, and it's 1953, and they're in McCormick, who's this incredibly wealthy woman, and they're being driven by this chauffeur up to this little tiny lab in Worcester, and they get out, and Gregory Pincus, who does know a lot about mammalian eggs, is able to persuade both Sanger and McCormick that this is the way to go. So McCormick... Uh, supports Pincus's lab, and then in several years, we have Innovid, which is the first mm -hmm. version of the pill. Sanger deserves credit for that. She's often uh, not given credit for this last phase, I feel, of, of uh, her life. 48 years, I mean, if you date it from 1912, pretty amazing length yeah. of, you know, career on, on behalf of... Yeah. Uh, let me just say a little, what she was doing during those 48 yeah. years. Uh, it wasn't only that she was disobeying the Comstock Act and getting put in jail. Uh, it was that she was organizing the first <coughs> national birth control league. She was writing. Sanger, Sanger wrote two books that sold over half a million copies. She edited the Birth Control Review and the Journal of Contraception. She lectured throughout the country. And all this while, this is a woman who is not healthy. Margaret Sanger has tuberculosis. She has gallbladder disease. She has heart disease. She has enough issues that would make me want to crawl into bed and stay there for the rest of my life. And yet, there she is, working, traveling. Beginning in the 1930s, her efforts at an inter international Planned Parenthood. So she's overseas a good deal. She sees this as not just an American issue, but uh, one that's especially pertinent uh, to women in India, China, and Japan. And you said earlier that uh, all our heroes have flaws, and here we are talking about the subject of all this work you've done. What, what were some of Margaret Sanger's uh, flaws? Um, I think after she got, she became the brand name mm -hmm. of um, birth control. And I find that interesting because there are some reform movements where one person is the brand name. Martin Luther King, um, for suffrage, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. There are others where there is no brand name, um, gay rights, for example. But um, Sanger becomes the brand name, and in that process, she adopts a position that she really is, is the queen. She's reluctant to share power in the organizations uh, with other women. Uh, she also has to get into the personal life. I guess you would say a messy personal life. Uh, Margaret Sanger has an abundance of lovers. Uh, she <laughs> attracts men as bees do <laughs> And these, these men, she enjoys sex. She says so. She lives it. It's part of her whole message to women is, 
If you are highly sexed, uh, and, and this is a, a paraphrase, you are blessed. And so she lived this life with multiple partners, and I'm certainly not going to make any judgments. Still about married that. at that time? Um, yes, she's ma married to Bill Sanger, divorces him, marries again, and has multiple affairs throughout her life, beginning in boarding school. Wow. <laughs> But whether we're going to put, make that part of her uh, messy life, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I know this isn't your favorite part of this, of her life to talk about, but she also flirted, with, was involved with the eugenics movement. Oh, I'm happy to talk about that. Yeah. Okay. Um, because I think looking back at it uh, with perspective from today, uh, it... it it seems very disapprovable. Yes. Um, I get about four or five angry letters from folks who say, uh, how can anybody support a Margaret Sanger or say anything about her uh, because she was a eugenicist? The problem with that is that we need to parse eugenicism from the position of where we are and where eugenics was in the 1920s. Eugenics simply was a biological effort to make better human beings. Now, in, in its extreme, it became an effort at involuntary sterilization. Sanger, for a brief time in her, during her life supported the idea that in, <clears throat> excuse me, those who were insane might be sterilized. It's a terrible chapter in her life. It's not defensible. She was, however, in the context of the time, eugenics light. <laughs> she supported a, a, a version of eugenics that was feminist in its origin. Uh, it's based on a birth control. If women have birth control, and if women use birth control, they can space their children, they can be better mothers, and we will have a better society. Sanger was also not a card-carrying eugenicist because she believed in nurture as well as nature. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, having knowing this life in the Lower East Side, uh, she was certainly <clears throat> supportive of the idea that if you improved environment, then you also would improve these uh, human beings. So... Uh, part of the problem with the connection of um, Sanger and eugenics today is frankly that it's political. She's being used as a battering ram for those who are after the, her institutional legacy, which is Planned Parenthood of America. If uh, you mean today, you, she's, today, being, today. she's being used. Uh, you remember Herman Cain. May, hopefully, maybe some of you don't remember Herman <laughs> Cain. Herman Cain uh, uh, promoted this idea that Margaret Sanger was a racist. Now, that's something that is so incorrect uh, that besides, if we can separate eugenicism from racism, uh, Margaret Sanger was asked by black leaders in Harlem to open a clinic, mm -hmm. and she did so. This is not planned genocide, but it must be said that African Americans in the United States have had a mixed view of contraception, perhaps for good reason. But Margaret Sanger was well ahead of her time. She opposed segregation well before Brown versus the Board of Education. And she was generally supportive of the idea that birth control would be the solution for African Americans as well as white Americans. And on this basis, uh, this charge is totally false. It's that bad history uh, that we are getting so much of. Uh, Planned Parenthood uh, has become this great lightning rod, it seems. Uh, 
in, in politics now. And what, what is your understanding of how that happened? I mean, is it, did, did Planned Parenthood let that happen? I mean, was it insufficiently, did it do a bad job at explaining itself as an organization? Probably, but I think also, uh, the, this, the politics of sex didn't exist during the Nixon administration. Uh, Nixon and Johnson, during this period, the idea of federal funding for abortion and uh, also birth control was acceptable by both parties. Come, if I can be so bold, Mr. Gingrich in 1994, and uh, <coughs> the, this becomes a wedge issue that can be used. Now, I don't know what Planned Parenthood uh, could do in the face of very heavy <clears throat> propaganda uh, by Republicans. And now we see the results of that in efforts not just to end abortions. These folks are after contraception. And that's what I hope everybody in this room is well aware of, however you come down on issues of abortion. These folks aren't kidding. They want to get rid of birth control. And we see this in the fight uh, with Obama. The, uh, this uh, anti-cancer organization, Susan G. Komen's yeah. For the Cure, whatever it was called, um, they, uh, and I've read a little bit about their political lineage too, but uh, suspended funding for Planned Parenthood, some of the grants they were giving, and, and this, there was a tremendous backlash and they had to, they had to back off. Well, how do you, how do you analyze that? Um, well, I, my basic feeling is that Komen speaks to a, a lots of women who are both conservative and liberal. Mm -hmm. And when you mess around with breast cancer, you're going to get a backlash. And I think Cohen also hired this woman uh, whose agenda was to end the connection. But I'm also fearful that this uh, will happen again in different instances. I haven't looked at the uh, 600 pages of the Obama budget, but I'm sure there's no cutting of Planned Parenthood, but we're going to get a big fight over plan the funding for uh, Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood over that weekend of the coma, Coman uh, imbroglio was able to raise all kinds of money, but they cannot sustain that. Uh, and so they really need uh, the support as a essentially private public organization that gets a f large part of its budget uh, from private sources. You know, when you think about the name Planned Parenthood, I mean, what's so radical about that? Well, why, why should... uh, Margaret Sanger hated that. Um, she didn't she like the name? was for birth control. Right. And what's in a name is important. When she, uh, when she began, there were, there were, you would talk about birth control and you might say, uh, voluntary parenthood, or uh, you might say uh, preventive intercourse. And there were all kinds of these euphemism. So Margaret Sayer said from the beginning and fought for the name birth control. So what happens in the, as time goes on, uh, is that uh, Margaret Sanger is less and less involved with her own organization, and so it is decided uh, by folks, I suppose, the uh, folks that you call for counseling about whether you're going to change your name from to mm -hmm. McDonald, Daniel College, or whatever. Uh, uh, they said Planned Parenthood. It's a much more neutral thing. She was furious. She fought for several years uh, with the folks in New York, she by this time is living in Tucson, against this change of name. What is Planned Parenthood, she said. It could be families. 
deciding to go on a vacation. It doesn't say what I want to say, which is controlling births. And I think that speaks to your earlier question about uh, what could be done. What these organizations, I think, uh, could do is to perhaps be more forceful. I think Planned Parenthood should say, we believe in the rights of women to have abortion. It's only, as everybody in this room probably knows, it's 3% of what they do. But I think they should stand up and say, this is something that is legal. We do it, and we're not going to retreat from that. That's what I think Margaret's saying. What have we done? Uh, I have one last question before we see if people have questions they want to ask. So think about that. We don't have microphones out there, so when you do ask a question, um, maybe I'll repeat them so we sure everyone hears. But um, why do you suppose physicians, doctors, were so opposed to birth control? That that that's something that it just doesn't make baffles sense me tomorrow. in the story. Yeah, right? Well, I mean, now we see, or I hope we all see, uh, birth control as a public health uh, issue. Mm -hmm. But originally, doctors did not see it that way. I think that. Generally speaking, doctors are conservative. Their socioeconomic backgrounds during the 1920s and 30s might have led them to be conservative. Yeah. Sorry, sorry over there. <laughs> but besides that, we're all male. Then that's a good point. Doctors are fighting for their professionalism, and they don't want a bunch of these women like Margaret Sanger who. They don't know anything about that. She's just a nurse. <laughs> she didn't even fi finish her nursing degree. And so they are resistant to this idea of birth control. There are uh, some exceptions, but I think basically they want to be professionals. And birth control is sort of this messy thing. Uh, nobody, no doctor wants to do research on birth control, and they don't. So, Be, because it's unpopular, it doesn't pay. You know, it, there's no money in it, yeah. it's messy, who knows what to do, and there are these uh, methods, these barrier methods that have been used for centuries, so why not just uh, stick, with, stick them? with them? And we'll do obstetrics. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the medical profession today is different. Oh, much, yes. I mean, there's not, there's not yeah. particularly a resistance to yeah. birth control. No, 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 no. In most, no. Among most doctors. No. So, anybody have any questions or comments for Jean Baker? Okay, um, I'll ask you to stand and say who you are. Hi, I'm Jody Armstrong. I graduated from my class with Ms. Jeffrey. Remember now? Do you oh, care to say what class you were in? I'm 77. 77. Yes. Okay. Oh, great class. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good year. Okay, so the question is to uh, tell something about her early life, her relationship with her mom, and how that all fits into her story. Well, certainly it's one explanation for what she was doing. Martha Sanger uh, was the sixth of 11th, 11 children. Her mother was pregnant 18 of 30 years of marriage, and her mother also had pulmonary TB. So Margaret Sanger grew up in this poor household in Corning, New York. Who's been to Corning? Oh, well, you know. The, the rich people live on the, on the top of the hill, and they have, as perceptive young Maggie Higgins recognized, they have one or two children. At the bottom of the hill are the, are the Higginses along the Chemung River, and the Higginses have 11 children. So uh, Margaret Sanger comes to birth control f from her family. She wrote once that her mother had lived to be 48 and her father had lived to be 80. And she didn't have to say anything more than that to make uh, the point about uh, the effect of pregnancy on a woman who has 
uh, tuberculosis. This family believed, as many Catholics, Catholic families did, and many other um, families of religious uh, denominations, that children trooped down from heaven. There was nothing that you wanted to do about this. This was in God's hands. So here comes this sixth child who sees things differently and argues that uh, you can do something about this, and we must do something about it. Yes. Jill Lucard, um, I graduated from a brother institution a little bit south of here, class of 78. Um, what is that? Johns Hopkins. <laughs> oh. We've heard of it. Yeah, there. Um, um, they got enlightened enough to admit women some years back. Um, I, in researching, um, for a novel, I, I did some work looking at um, access to the pill for single women, which was very controversial in the mid-60s and into the early 70s. <coughs> I wondered if Sanger was involved in that controversy and um, if your work um, led you to have insight into that discussion and Planned Parenthood's role um, in that conversation during that time period. Do uh, you want to repeat the question, or shall I? The, the, the question is, uh, relates to the uh, controversy over access to birth control pills for single women, especially in the mid to late 60s and into the 1970s. And, uh, well, that would have been late for Sanger to be involved, but um, I, I guess you mean sort of earlier. She, um, Sanger... I'm not sure she even knew about the Griswold versus Connecticut case. Griswold versus Connecticut case, uh, uh, for those of you who don't know, is uh, the case that asserts privacy rights for all Americans. And it's the case that Clarence Thomas loathes. It establishes a penumbra according to William uh, Douglas, the justice who wrote the decision, of privacy which the, the government cannot invade. That case came down in 1965. Sanger apparently knew about it because it was a tremendous triumph. But to get to the thrust of your question... So in, uh, just to specify, that Griswold v. Connecticut had to do with reproductive rights as being protected yes, as, as yes, by, yes. by rights of privacy. privacy. Governments can't tell people not to use birth control. Right. Yeah. Um, but to get to your question, um, there was a test case in Bo at Boston College uh, where someone gave out contraceptive devices, was arrested, and this led to Eisenstadt versus Baird, another case which established the privacy rights for contraception for unmarried Americans. So there's this big gap between, okay for married folks uh, to use uh, contraception, but not okay for unmarried folks, uh, uh, um, young people, until uh, Eisenstadt versus, versus Baird. So, uh, you know, the United States is, we're pretty prudish, I think, in terms of the way that we look at uh, sex. And uh, Sanger is this startling example of someone who really raged against that and tried to change it. I hope that helps. I'll be glad to. But Sanger herself by 65, 66 sort of is out of it. Yes, which is why uh, sometimes people ask about Innovit and the pill, uh, and the pill did have some risk factors, never as many as being pregnant. I mean, you're much better off uh, uh, not having a child than having a child in terms of risking your health. Uh, but in, in any case, um, the... Forgotten what I was going to say. <laughs> it's getting too late for me. No, oh, no. We'll, we'll move right along. Uh, yes, Andrew. Hello, my name is Andrew, and I'm the 
class of 2014, and I work as a patient escort at the Center City Clinic in Philadelphia, and the clinics in that area generally get protested three days a week, and there are times when entire church congregations will block traffic. And so I'm wondering, it seems in my opinion that there's not the same energy and consistency of support and defense of Planned Parenthood, and that it's becoming difficult to actually counter those who are against Planned Parenthood to the same degree. And so I'm wondering, what were Margaret Sanger's tactics for persuading people to continue her agenda and to actually mobilize support oh. behind Planned Parenthood? I think everyone could probably hear that. Yeah, so the question. bottom line is, what were her tactics? Yes. Um, yeah, I'm not sure they're relevant, though, to your to the situation that you've, you've uh, described. Well, I think what Andrew is saying is that People who are trying to prevent people from coming people to from coming to this clinic are very effective and well organized, and the other side seems not to be well organized to to defend the people who are trying to get to the clinic. So, would, would Sanger have oh. been more uh, efficient or more effective in her defense of, of people like that? I just um, want to compliment you on what you're doing. I, I had occasion writing this book to go to these clinics. And it's a really a frightening experience. It certainly does limit the number of people who come because there is such ferocious intimidation on the other side. There are, as you know, uh, laws that prevent these folks from coming too close they're rarely enforced, but nonetheless, they do exist. Uh, in terms of what uh, Sayer would have done, um, I, I, I just can't speak to it. It was so, she probably would have hit these people or <laughs> and gone off to jail because she thought that this kind of publicity really reinforced what she wanted to do. It redounded to her advantage. So every time that she uh, had a scrummage, and she did have several with police officers, she believed that that was a very good thing to do. Uh, but in a general sense, I, I, I just simply don't have any answer to uh, this question. And, and the awful thing is the escalation of violence that we have permitted uh, that has resulted in Kansas in uh, Dr. Tiller being assassinated in a church. And so I, I just don't know what the answer is, except to try to change public opinion. And that's what Sanger was successful at. She was able, surely, to nudge public opinion uh, from believing that sex should lead to reproduction to separating those two. And it was done through the typical means of education, et cetera. Gene, what about the, the situation of devout Catholics now? Um, these, the, the health care <laughs> bill and the effort to require people to, to require insurance policies to cover contraception, it, it doesn't seem like a very radical thing, and yet, some of the Catholic hierarchy has been, has really leaped onto this and, and, and used it. Um, I had a conversation with my publicist, and uh, <coughs> uh, he said, the best thing that's happened to your book is the Catholic bishops and the Republican presidential <laughs> candidates. <laughs> uh, some, might, some might see a conspiracy here. Yeah. Um, I don't really think uh, that this is an issue of religious liberty. No one is closing down the Catholic Church. No one is saying to Catholics that they cannot have their services. Uh, the Catholic bishops also, I don't believe, uh, represent the mainstream. And we all know this, don't we? We know uh, that if you look at the figures from the Guttmacher Institute, which is the a most nonpartisan way of looking at these issues that 98% uh, of all American women will use birth control at some time. 97% of all Catholic women will use birth control. So 
apparently this is not a moral issue for anybody except the bishops. Who are men. <laughs> well, yes, but beyond men, and this is a point that Sanger made, Sanger was very rude to Catholics, it must be said. Uh, she would make fun of the fact that they were celibate. And how could anyone that was celibate make rules for the rest of the universe? When she testified... not a bad point. <laughs> when, when she testified um, before Congress, she would uh, t talk about uh, how Catholic priests... Uh, Catholic priests would get up and testify. This is to change the Comstock Law in the 1930s. And the Catholic priests would get up and uh, say that uh, it was important to have more Americans. And Sanger would get up and say, why aren't you out there on the job then? That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, pretty funny. I won't tell you what she said about the Pope. <laughs> no, 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 no. You'll have to buy the book. But not tonight. Um, yes. Hi, Professor Baker. Um, Hi. I was, you were my advisor on minor history. Um, I'm actually a Republican. Her choice, actually. Yeah, you need to introduce yourself. <laughs> too. No, but against some of the things that she wanted. So it didn't really work into the partisan battle. Partisan battle has, is quite new. And as I suggested, it comes post-Nixon, post-Johnson. And it has taken over this universe. And so uh, as Cecile Richards, who's the head of Planned Parenthood of America, says, uh, it's become a partisan issue. And it's a health issue and shouldn't be a partisan issue. And Republicans are against it, and they wonder why we can't get female support. So, how do you defend your party? I honestly cannot. I honestly cannot. My, my party quite disappoints me because my party is the party of women, not the party of what she becomes, frankly, which is more more conservative to the right. Because I actually was at CPAC recently, and it's just gotten more and more to the right. Um, the really terrible thing uh, that I see that's happened is this agenda that. Uh, a fertilized egg will have personhood. Uh, this, is a, uh, this is a constitutional amendment that was voted down in Mississippi, and everybody's so happy it's been voted down. Shouldn't be 40% of all Mississippians voted for the idea of a fertilized egg, which will mean that any woman who is pregnant is two people. Personhood is a word that comes from the 14th Amendment. And the idea of passing these kinds of constitutional amendments will mean that there are no IUDs, uh, the pill possibly will be outlawed, and that there will be no abortions in the United States. And every one of your Republican candidates supports this idea of giving a fertilized egg Personhood. Romney probably originally didn't, but Romney has been. Oh, oh no. Oh. 
Right. At the turn of the, at the end of the century, the Republican Party was the, certainly the party of suffrage women. The end of, not the last century, the one before. Uh, so. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, when the... These historians, you know, <laughs> they mistake the, the past for the present. Well, when you get, when you get over 60, all those centuries... Oh, Jean, let's not talk about, let's not go there. Yes. The question is how much Margaret Sanger's crusade on behalf of birth control changed the country's attitude toward women in the t uh, over the 20th century. Yeah. Um, um, it, it, great question. Of course, all the questions that have been asked are great. <coughs> uh, um, I think Scoucher. that <laughs> a lot, uh, because I think sexuality is an important part of a human life. And so what Sanger did was in many ways to use a very bad metaphor, cut the umbilical cord. <laughs> women were autonomous. And women, said Margaret, said, no woman is free who does not control her body. Now, if you hear that, and you've grown up in the early part of the um, 20th. 20th century, <laughs> uh, then I think this is liberating. And I think that this is, in some ways, a gigantic step that was taken during the 1920s when progressivism just turned down. You know, one of the reasons I wrote this book was because I was looking for this stream of reform after suffrage, and after suffrage, even Alice Paul can't do anything with the ERA. So here comes Sanger during the progressive uh, period, and she's able to have a crusade that affects women in a very intimate way. Women don't have as many children. That means they're more likely to be in the workforce, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the answer is a lot. Um, I have one more question I want to ask, but, but uh, you willing to take one or two more from the audience? I, I usually have a ton of hostile questions. Oh, well, yeah. oh. <laughs> might be in the wrong place for hostile questions. Um, yes. I'm not graduated from Goucher, but I am a social worker and I worked in women's health for many years. And I worked with the population that you're talking about now and, and fought for women's rights in the 70s. And um, I, was, I was always confused, and still am, about this whole issue in that uh, there is so much pressure from the right to save the fetus. The fetus is so important. But the baby has no health, and the mother of the baby and the family. So that when I was working on the system, you know, we really had very little that we could provide to the babies once they were born. You know, this was a, a, a poor population. And um, even getting health care, even getting pregnancy, uh, you know, to be uh, funded. I mean, it just makes no sense. I and mean, if the right wing got their way, what would we do with these children and these families? I mean, the services are cut off, the funding is one cut off. So I don't understand. It's a mystery. Uh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try. Um, I don't know how many people could hear the question. I couldn't hear it that well myself. But um, I guess the, the question is what the right, the, the question says the right wing fights on behalf of the, the rights of the fetus, but does not seem to care adequately about the rights of the child and the mother, or the parents, for that matter, after the child is born. 
and uh, her worry is that if they have their way, uh, there will be a lot of, uh, this is the part I'm not quite sure I get, but more, more babies who are not adequately cared for, yeah, who don't have proper health care. Um, could I say one thing to your uh, comment, and it, it deals with sex education, which, as we know, some of the group that you've described um, oppose even the most basic forms of sex education. See, here we are living in a society in which we say that we don't want kids to have certain forms of sex education, but guess what? It's okay for them to be mothers of babies. Uh, this is a, a crazy kind of conundrum uh, that has emerged from the way that we are operating in the United States today. But I want to be optimistic. And uh, what I'm thinking about, I'm going to close off. Pretty soon. Yeah. Pretty soon. Okay. Um, uh, whenever I get discouraged about these matters, I simply try to think of Margaret Sanger and the tremendous opposition that she had from the Catholic Church, uh, from the doctors, and from public opinion. And yet she soldiered on and was successful. So it takes uh, perhaps a few very, very strong voices uh, that will make a difference. Um, yes. Uh, Hannah, yes. Um, I'm in the class Success and Failure in Early American Capitalism with Professor Hale, and we're <coughs> learning a lot Here he is. He's ready to answer your question. We're <laughs> 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 learning about a lot of success and failure stories with um, like early American capitalists and their investment like, in the steel industry and how they became successes. I was wondering if you would consider Margaret Sanger a success story with her investment in birth control, although it's not capitalism. I'm wondering if you call her a success. Can everyone hear that? A success. Yes. You heard. Yes. I, I consider her a success. Um, she also was a, um, a, became a successful capitalist. Her second husband uh, was uh, J. Noah Slee, a dreadful name. How could anybody marry someone named J. Noah Slee? <laughs> was uh, an owner of three-in-one oil. And so, <laughs> those little red cans. So one of the things that changed for Margaret Sanger was that Slee, the second husband, was very supportive of birth control. And he and Sanger uh, were invested in this together. Margaret Sanger's story really is a progression of how a poor little Irish Catholic girl uh, could end up as a world celebrity with a portfolio that was worth over a million dollars. Um, these last two questions, oh, go ahead, Ben, one more, and then I'm gonna ask my last question. Go ahead. Uh, ben Muser, uh, class of 12, history major. Uh, I'm, I might be way off here, but I'm just curious. Uh, when we talk about her work starting in 1912 to around 1960, it seems to frame pretty well the First and Second World War. Um, and I'm curious if, um, if the World War I uh, or World War II had any effect on her uh, crusade for her control. Questions. Uh, 1912 to 1960, roughly a period of activity. Uh, you can look at it as the period of the two world wars and the interwar period. And did that have any impact on her? Um, certainly World War I. Uh, she's a pacifist. And she's connected to Emma Goldman and many of the anarchists who are going to be deported. Uh, we were talking at dinner about the FBI and the deportation of uh, Russians. And she closes down. Uh, it's real hard during World War I. So during these periods when she stops. Uh, she reads, she studies. This is the most active woman that, uh, imaginable. But to get back to the um, 
philosophical basis for her pacifism, it's, it's based on the idea of Lebensraum, uh, that the Germans need more room. There are too many people. If we have birth control, there won't be so many people and there won't be so many wars. Birth control for um, Margaret Sanger is inevitably the independent variable. And so in the case of, of war, she applies it to uh, these populations. She says, for example, that the French, who have the best, we might have guessed this, the best record of birth control, uh, are going to be to win the war. She says this as the Germans are um, defeating the French troops and they're fleeing into Paris. There was a lot of things that uh, Sanger spoke to that perhaps she didn't know as much as she, she would. But the key, th key thing here is she's a pacifist. And she continues to be a pacifist, although this shades a little bit when two sons go off in World War II and are fighting in Germany and in Japan. Um, Jean, so to sum up, as a historian, do you, do you have uh, an understanding of how someone like Margaret Sanger, who, who as you say, was a sort of improbable character for this role, um, what is it that makes her rise to this key place and, and to make such a difference? Are, are they, is, it, is it personality? Is it, is it happenstance? Politics? Luck? Um, drive? Oh. I mean, how, how, does it, how does one person emerge the way she did? Mm -hmm. Well, it's what we've talked about. Persistence, character, ability to take uh, criticism. How would you like to have uh, people, to get back to the question, throwing things at you all the time, insulting you, et cetera, et cetera. She's a really strong personality. But I have to say, uh, because historians don't like this idea of biography, yeah. Yeah. and uh, what they like is the idea of a, uh, a social community that's changing, and it's true. Uh, American women are cutting their birth rate Margaret Sanger is riding a, a wave. I would put this differently. I would say it's as if you have a, a pot and it's cooking, and Margaret Sanger puts all the flavors in. Certainly at, mm. it, during this period... So she picked up a wave that was already yes, going. Yes, yes. So uh, if you want to be a Margaret Sanger, to, maybe to the students, pick that wave... And with your Goucher education, um, which will be a much better one than Margaret Sanger ever had, uh, you'll be able to do uh, whatever you want to do. And on that uh, platitudinous note. <laughs> um, well, well, Jean, uh, thank you very much. Well. You know, um, when we have visitors to Goucher, we always try to give them something to take with them, something about Goucher, and we give hats and T-shirts. And actually, recently, we've been giving copies of a biography of Margaret Sanger to visitors to Goucher. But um, none of those seemed appropriate for this evening, so we have some flowers for you. <laughs>